0: Have you ever had something happen in your life uh, to where you've reflected on previous events and previous conversations that have eventually led up to that point? It could be the way in which uh, God saved you, uh, as you reflect on how God sovereignly orchestrated uh, all the events that led up to that point of you coming to faith in Christ. Uh, It could be how you met your spouse. the, uh, the way that you met, your, uh, you met your spouse or the way that you got the job that you currently have, um, the, the home that you live in. Uh, there could be a variety of things, even small things, uh, that you reflect back and you realize, oh, I see how God used that and that uh, to fit together in order to lead to this point. Well, one of those uh, moments for me was back in May of 2015, uh, I was sitting in a Dunkin' Donuts, uh, some of you that know me aren't surprised by that, uh, in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, uh, where I lived at the time. And uh, I was uh, sitting across the table from uh, my friend Santiago, uh, who's from Columbia and uh, South America, not, not Columbia, uh, South Carolina, where I'm from, and, uh, and, and we were uh, having a conversation. Uh, I was sharing uh, the gospel with him, and, uh, and so I was, ref- and then I reflected back on how, how God led up to that point, I uh, flash back to the summer of two thousand and thirteen, about two years earlier, and uh, I was on a summerlink team. Uh, there was a team of about ten of us that were up in Boston uh, serving together for six weeks at Redemption Hill Church uh, up in Medford, Massachusetts, and uh, we were it was, it was probably June or early July uh, of that summer, two thousand and thirteen. And some of the team members uh, that, uh, that I was uh, on mission with, they were on the train uh, in, in Boston. And uh, they just so happened to uh, sit on the same car as uh, this, these international students and, uh, and, and this lady that managed this international dorm uh, where all these students lived. And they struck up a conversation with her and, uh, and these students, and, and they got to know them. And they said, hey... Why don't you, we're having a cookout on the 4th of July. Why don't y'all come over and, uh, and, and hang out with us and connect with us and get to know us? And uh, the, our, my team members are like, yeah, that'd be great. You know, they exchanged exchange phone numbers and uh, set all that up. So we went over there, had, had a, a 4th of July cookout with them in 2013. And, uh, and then just from that point, we were able to build some, uh, a relationship with these international students and this lady that managed the dorm. Well, fast forward to January 2014, I, I moved up to Boston to serve as an intern up there for a year and a half. And I reconnected with these international students and with uh, this, uh, this lady that was managing the dorm and continued to uh, foster that relation, those relationships over uh, that spring. And then we come to the summer of 2014, and uh, we were able to have a Bible study uh, over the summer in, the, in this dorm. And uh, we are uh, able to go back for another 4th of July cookout um, in, in the summer of 2014, so two years in a row. Um, and by God's grace, uh, man, during that, during that time, that 4th of July cookout, cookout I don't know that there was anybody there that didn't hear the gospel. We were having gospel conversations with all of these international students. It was, it was an amazing opportunity. But God continued to foster those relationships with these international students, Um, And in particular, there were several guys that uh, I was able to continue to meet up with on a regular basis and was able to share the gospel with and was able to read scripture with. And in particular, uh, this guy, my friend Santiago, he was very interested uh, in in studying the Bible and learning more and asking questions. And uh, we went through the Gospel of Mark together over months and months. And then it led up to that point in May of 2015 at a Dunkin' Donuts in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Santiago said, I want to follow Christ. I want to worship him with my life. And that's just God's grace, his sovereign grace, that that happened. And so as I reflected back, it's like, wow, from a train conversation back in the summer of 2013 leading to May of 2015, where Santiago is professing Christ as his Lord and Savior. What an amazing picture of God's sovereign grace, his providence. And as we look back, or as we look at uh, Matthew 1 this morning, we are going to be able to look back and see how God, God's providence works out over thousands of years in order to bring about his plan of redemption through his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So church, would you please read along as I read Matthew chapter one. This is the word of God, church. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, And Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. At the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad. And Abiad, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to to the Christ, fourteen generations. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Church, would you please pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us to reveal yourself to us, to reveal your plan of redemption to us. We thank you for coming in the flesh as the God-man in order to save us from our sins. God, we are humbled that you would do that for sinful mankind so that we could be reconciled to you and worship you with our lives. Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes to the fact that you are a sovereign and faithful God who carried out your plan of redemption over thousands of years so that we might know you and worship you. And Lord, may that truth, the truths of your sovereignty and your faithfulness, give us, your people, a greater trust in your sovereignty and your faithfulness. So God, would you encourage us in the areas in which we are lacking trust, lacking faith in you? Lord, we pray that you would be glorified as your word is proclaimed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've broken this text up into two different sections. First of all, verses 1 through 17, we see that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. So as we get started, I just want to set the context a little bit. First of all, uh, Matthew's audience was primarily a Jewish audience. uh, Primarily a Jewish audience. So this genealogy uh, would have been extremely familiar uh, to his audience. And he starts off in verse 1 with two heavy hitters. He says, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And as soon as his audience would have heard these names, he would have had their attention just like that. Just like if I would have said, hey, look, there's John Piper. He just came in the room, or Mark Dever, or Jen Wilkin, uh, or for you Georgia fans, uh, there's Kirby Smart. Um, you know, and, and, uh, <laughs> um, and you know, he, and as soon as I said that, they would have your attention, right? Uh, as, as they walked in the room, you'd be like, oh, man, all eyes would be on them, and, and people would want to talk to them, right? And so in the, in the same way, like, this, this is, these, these names grabbed their attention. Uh, or maybe for kids. Kids, y'all listen up to this one. Maybe if you're doing something that you're not supposed to be doing, and all of a sudden you hear your first and your middle name yelled by one of your parents at the loud, as loud as they can, uh, then you you have you, you know you better give your attention to your parents, right? And so and so in a similar way, like this is these kinds of names, the son of David, uh, son of Abraham, this grabbed their attention, right? He had their attention. So um, light bulbs will be going off for. Uh, these, this, his audience, as he was going through this messianic lineage. They'd be, oh yeah, I know who that is. Aha, I know who that is. Yeah, I, I see how he's connecting the dots in order to lead up to his point. And his point is, is, he's saying, Jesus has the credentials to prove that he, in fact, is the promised Christ. He is the promised Messiah, whom the Old Testament was pointing forward to, Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of that. So the Old Testament points to the coming of the Savior, and Jesus is, in fact, that promised king, that promised Messiah. So Matthew's claim is crystal clear. Jesus is the son of David and the promised Messiah who came to rescue sinners. 2 Samuel seven twelve 12-16. When your days are fulfilled... As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So Matthew's point is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this. He is the promised king whose kingdom will endure forever. So there are several names mentioned in this genealogy um, and I want to take uh, a look at some of the ones that we've been going through in uh, our study through the book of Genesis. And I pray that this would be an encouragement to us. And, um, and so I just want to take a look at, um, at a few of those names and just see how they are, uh, the, these pieces of these people, uh, the, they're, they're pieces of the puzzle that lead to the coming of uh, the Savior. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God called Abraham to, to, to pick up everything, to leave his family, to leave the land that he knew, to go to a land that he didn't even know where he was going. And uh, we know that eventually God revealed that uh, to him, that it would, it would be the land of Canaan. And uh, he made a covenant with Abraham. He said that your descendants would be as great as the stars of the sky. And there's going to be one that comes from you that will be a blessing to all the peoples. God promised to bless all the peoples through the seed of Abraham. Remember several months ago, and and, uh, Ken's mentioned this a couple of different times, how we can get lost uh, in time as we look at Scripture. We can get lost. We don't realize how much time goes by by just reading through the the accounts of Scripture. And so I think it's important for us to remember that, um, as Ken has mentioned several times. Abraham was 75 years old whenever that promise was made to him, whenever that covenant was made to him. And it wasn't until he was a hundred years old that God provided him with Isaac through Sarah. 25 years, 25 years until Isaac was born. It took God 25 years to fulfill the promise that he had made, that he would, he would build a, a people, a families, uh, a, a descendants that would, would come from him uh, that would be as, as numerous as the stars of the sky. And it took 25 years for that to happen. Imagine the emotional uh, toil, uh, the doubting, the, the questioning of God. God, when is this going to happen? You promised that this is going to happen. 25 years later, it's like a third of our average lifespan, right? Imagine a third of your life waiting on a promise to be fulfilled. That's a long time for our, you know, our, our short lives, right? Although this experience must have been extremely difficult, God was faithful. He did fulfill his promise. He is a promise maker and a promise keeper, and so we can trust him. And I want to point this out too. He did this in an unexpected way. Sarah was 90 years old, and she uh, became pregnant and had Isaac at 90 years old. This is an unexpected way, right, from a worldly standpoint. Genesis 24 and 25, we have Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac was 40 years old uh, whenever he married Rebecca, and Rebekah was barren for 20 years. 20 years. So God, when are you going to fulfill this promise? How are you going to continue this lineage if my wife is barren? Once again, in God's perfect timing, he blessed them with Esau and Jacob. It seemed as if his Promise wouldn't be fulfilled, but God, again, was faithful to fulfill his promise. Fast forward to Jacob and Leah and Rachel. Remember old Uncle Laban mistreating uh, Jacob for so long, deceiving him, him serving him for 20 years, enduring all of that, but the Lord preserved him and continued to sustain this family Uh, from which the Messiah would eventually come from. And then we have Genesis 38, which tells the narrative of Judah and Tamar. In this genealogy in verses 1 through 17, we know that Jesus would eventually come from the line of Judah. He would eventually come from Judah. Now, more specifically, through Judah's uh, relationship with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, So once again, in an unlikely manner, according to worldly standards, the Lord preserved the lineage in order to bring about the Messiah one day, to bless all nations. He even used incest in order to do that, to accomplish his purposes. And then we have uh, the sermon from last week, Genesis 49, specifically verses 8 through 12, which Pastor Ken preached on this past Sunday. Jacob prophesied that uh, from the line of Judah would come Jesus, would come the Messiah, which we see clearly in our text this morning. He said the scepter or the staff of the king, it would never be removed from Judah. The one who comes from the tribe of Judah would have an everlasting kingdom, just like we saw back in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, 12-16. through 16. This kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom, Fast forward to Genesis 50, which we will get to in a couple of weeks. Just want to uh, peek briefly there. This is the end of Joseph's life, and his brothers are kind of scared. Jacob has died, and so they're, kind of, they're trying to uh, make sure Joseph isn't going to do them wrong. And so uh, Joseph responds to them in, this, in, in chapter 50, uh, verse 20. He says, As for you, you meant for evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So if Joseph didn't interpret Pharaoh's dream, that there would be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, then there would have been all kinds of people starving to death, right? And possibly even Jacob and all of his sons, all of his descendants. But God in his sovereignty he orchestrated all these events: Joseph being sold into slavery, going in, going to prison, getting out of prison, being second in command of Pharaoh, to be able to put together a plan to preserve people by providing food so that they could continue to live. So God used this evil, this evil act, even selling a sibling into slavery to bring about his sovereign and good plans. So these patriarchs they they faced extremely uh, difficult situations, right? And many of them were doubting God, you know, God, when are you going to provide uh, our our child, our son to continue the lineage that you so promised that you would do? When is that going to happen? It seemed as if it wouldn't, right? There were 20, 25 years. But God was faithful. He was always faithful to fulfill his promises to his people. And church, I think there's a a lesson here, an implication here, that we ought to rest in God's faithfulness. We ought to rest in God's faithfulness. He was faithful to preserve his people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Judah, all down the line— in order to accomplish his purposes in and through their lives. He faithfully preserved his people to eventually bring about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And church, God never changes. He was faithful then, he is faithful now. He was faithful to his people then, he is faithful to his people, the church, now. So rest in God's faithfulness. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to, the, to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Our God is faithful, and we, are, we can be sure of this, that he will preserve us, he will sustain us, and he will complete his work in us. So what are the things in your life that are causing you to doubt God's faithfulness? Where you're not sure, God, what are you doing here? Why, why are you letting this happen? Or why are you not intervening here? What, what, are the thing, what, what are those things in your life that you're doubting God's faithfulness and goodness? Perhaps it's a relationship with somebody else in your life. Uh, maybe a family member or a friend that you're struggling with, perhaps it's a sin struggle, perhaps it's uh, problems with your children, maybe, maybe not even young children, maybe it's your grown children, maybe it's your finances or your health, what, what, whatever that might be, what is that thing for you in which you are doubting God's faithfulness? We don't always understand why God does what he does or the timing in which he does things. But based off of what God's word says and how we see him carry out his sovereign plan of redemption, we know that our God is, in fact, faithful. He is always faithful to his people. So rest, rest, church, in the faithfulness of our God. Not only did God fulfill his promises, but he often did so using unlikely means, means in which would not make sense from a worldly standpoint in order to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Abraham waited 25 years for a son. Isaac waited 20. Jacob served Laban for 20 years. Judah continued the Messianic lineage through his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Joseph was sold into slavery in order to preserve life. That does not make any sense uh, whatsoever from a worldly standpoint. We, we would be thinking, God, why don't you just do this instantly? Just, just go ahead and do this. Just go ahead and give me a son right now. That's not how God always works. He, always, he, he, he works in ways that don't always make sense from a worldly standpoint. God's timing and means, don't, uh, they don't always make sense to the human mind. So I think there's an implication there as well, uh, a lesson for us, that we should depend on God's power and wisdom and not our own. We should depend on God's wisdom and power, not our own. This reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 2, 5, and we, won't, we don't have time to go and read that this morning, but... Uh, that is a, I would encourage you to go and read that text today or sometime this week with your family and, uh, and reflect on that. But, but in essence, you know, God chose what is weak and what is foolish according to worldly standards in order to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And he did this to show that he is the one who is all-powerful and all-wise, not us. He is the one who is all-powerful and all wise, His ways are greater than our ways. And so church, we cannot accomplish things on our own power, on our own wisdom. Rather, we are to humbly depend upon our Lord. So brothers and sisters, don't seek to accomplish things on your own wisdom, on your own power, by your own means. We are a people who are absolutely, 100%, in desperate need, of God's power and God's wisdom in our lives. So depend on him, church. So Jesus, he is in fact the long-awaited Messiah. Matthew makes that point crystal clear through this genealogy. He's claiming Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the, one who has come, the king who has come to bless the nations with salvation. So that is, that is who, uh, who Matthew's claiming Jesus is, and that is, in fact, who he is. But how and why did Jesus come? How and why did he come? That's what we're going to see in verses 18 through 25. Let's read those again together. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary to save sinners. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary to save sinners. There's two questions that that we see and that that we can answer from these verses. How and why did Jesus come? So first of all, how was Jesus conceived and born? Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary by way of the Holy Spirit. So Mary was a virgin and she was pledged in marriage to Joseph. And Joseph found out that, uh, that she was pregnant and so he thinks, okay, hey, she's been unfaithful to me. She's been with another man. And so I'm going to quietly uh, divorce her, uh, separate from her, and to, in order to not bring too much shame on her. But then we see uh, that Joseph has a dream. This angel appears to him and says, hey, look, Joseph, this is, a, this is a, a child not from another man, but from the Holy Spirit. So don't leave her. This is from the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. So the angel revealed that to Joseph in 24 and 25. And because the angel revealed that to him, he remained with uh, Mary and eventually married her. Now let's take a moment and just reflect on the stunning ways in which God continued uh, the the Messianic line. Uh, Now I've mentioned a few of these uh, back in verses 1 through 17 under that point, but I uh, want to consider some of these again in light of the virgin birth. So... There are four women that are mentioned in the genealogy in verses 1 through 17. And each of them committed a sexual sin, or their people uh, were at least characterized by sexual immorality. You have Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah, who, uh, who, commits, um, who, who has uh, um, sexual relations with Tamar in order to have twins, Perez and Zerah. Uh, and then you have Rahab, the prostitute, uh, Solomon, They had Boaz uh, with Rahab. Uh, And so uh, you have that. You have Ruth. Uh, She wasn't, we don't know uh, in particular that she was uh, sexually immoral, but we know that the Moabites were a people who were characterized by sexual immorality. And then you have David and Bathsheba. Uh, David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then not only that, but he had Uriah killed in battle. He sent a note with him. And gave, he gave it to the guy that was in charge, and he put him on the front line so that he would be killed. And uh, and they had Solomon, King Solomon, together. Now, if we, if you and I were going to def- devise a, a plan of uh, of redemption to uh, preserve the messianic lineage, we probably wouldn't pick those four ladies, right? We we just we just probably wouldn't. It doesn't make sense from a worldly standpoint. But one of the things that we see is that. He God is the one. God is the one who is absolutely sovereign, and he is using his power and his wisdom in order to accomplish his plans for his glory. So this, is, this truth is absolutely essential for us to realize with the virgin birth. Um, God uses means that don't often make sense from a worldly standpoint, right? And we see that clearly in the virgin birth. That doesn't make sense from a worldly standpoint, right? In God's providence, he preserved the lineage of the promised one means from a worldly standpoint. So now the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has come into the world by the Virgin Mary, by way of the Holy Spirit. So God preserved the messianic lineage in unexpected ways, and, and this displays his complete sovereignty and power and wisdom. And in the virgin birth, we see an even greater example of him using means that don't make sense from a worldly standpoint in order to accomplish his purposes. How could a virgin conceive and give birth to a son apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit? That's the only explanation. It was a supernatural act by the third person of the Trinity in order for Jesus to be conceived into the womb of Mary. It's the only explanation, and that is what we see in Scripture. So Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary by way of the Holy Spirit. Our second question is answered in verses 21 through 23. Uh, Why did he come? Why was Jesus born? Let's look at verses 21 through 23 again. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The reason reason Jesus was born was to be God in the flesh to save sinners from their sin and death. That is why he came. He came in order to be God in the flesh to save sinners from sin and death. Jesus, it means deliver. Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the anointed one, he's the promised one to come. And we see that he fulfilled that prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that we see in verse 23 here. He is, in fact, Emmanuel, God with us. God in the flesh, the promised Messiah, in order to save us from our sins. God had to put on flesh in order to save us from our sins. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. He is fully God. And we see this as we walk, if if you were to to walk through the gospel uh, accounts, he displayed complete authority over creation. He healed people. He rose the dead back to life. He had authority to forgive sins. And he is the one who rose victoriously, defeating sin and death and Satan. He is, in fact, fully God. He's also fully man. He, had a, he has a physical body. He grew and developed mentally and physically. He went from the baby in the manger to the 30-year-old man doing ministry and eventually uh, dying on the cross. He had a range of emotions so he was, in fact, fully man as well. He was able to fully identify with us as a human being. So as God, he was able to pay the eternal penalty that which no man could, could pay themselves. So he was able to pay our penalty on the cross because he is fully God. And as fully man, he was our, an adequate representative Uh, for us, to save us from our sins. He was an adequate representative to be our substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. Now, the incarnation, it's it's a great mystery that we cannot fully comprehend. How can he be fully God and fully man? But church, this is what we see in the scriptures. Jesus is one person with two distinct natures. He is fully God and he is fully man. He delivered us from our sins through his perfect life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And Jesus not only came to save the Jews, but he came to save the Gentiles. He came to save the nations, all people groups. We can just refer back to the genealogy where we see these Gentile women listed in this genealogy. It shows God's heart even for the nations back then. So Jesus came to live a perfect life and die a substitutionary death on the cross, not just for the Jews, not just for his own people, but for the peoples of the nations. Genesis twelve three reflect back on that. Abraham's seed would be a blessing to who? All peoples, all peoples. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, we see a beautiful picture. There are two groups of people before the gospel, but Jesus' blood has destroyed that barrier, that wall of hostility, and brought together both Jew and Gentile together as one people under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 18-20, the church's marching orders. We are called not to just make disciples of one particular people. We are called to make disciples of all, what, nations, right? All peoples. That is our charge as a church. So Jesus came to live a sinless life, to die on a cross in our place as our substitute, to to be buried and to rise again on the third day so that that gospel message would go forth to the nations. Friend, maybe you're here this morning or perhaps you're watching online. Have you trusted in this Lord, the one true King? He is the only way, the only way of redemption the only way to be reconciled back to God, to be saved from our sins and death, it is only by way of faith in Jesus Christ. We are all born sinners. We don't have to learn how to sin. We are born sinners. And that sin, it separates us from a holy God and the only way by which we can be made one with God again is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so friend, if you're here this morning, if you're watching online, I plead with you, trust in Christ, trust in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came to save his people from their sins. A few applications to consider and, and just continuing with that, uh, with that thought we just had. First of all, Find true hope and peace by trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Our first Sunday of Advent was hope. Um, and and I, think it's, um, I think it's just a good way to remind ourselves that there's only one true hope, church. There's only one true hope, and that is in Christ. So don't place your hope in the physical, material world. Kids, don't place your hope in the, the presents that you get, or maybe even the presents you don't get. This Christmas, those things will not ultimately satisfy those things are certainly gifts from the Lord that are to be enjoyed, but they are not God themselves. Nothing in this world can ultimately quench our souls are the thirst of our souls, but Jesus Christ. The second Sunday of Adam's peace, we were enemies of God because of our sin and rebellion against him romans five six to eleven For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Experience the true peace, the true hope that comes through Christ alone. Once again, friend, if you have not believed in Christ Repent of your sin and trust in him because true hope and true peace is found in him alone. Secondly, praise God for displaying his love by sending his son to save us from our sins. Praise God for out of love sending his son to save us from our sins. Love is the third Sunday of Advent. Out of love, our Father sent the Son to save sinners like us, to reconcile us to himself and to one another as the bride of Christ. And so may we be a people who praise him, praise him for his love and his mercy and his kindness to us through the gospel. May we never get over the gospel. For those of you that are married, it would, this, this would be like if you told your spouse, honey, told you I loved you on our wedding day. Told you how much I appreciated you on our wedding day. I don't have to say that to you anymore. I said it one time, I, pray, I love you, I appreciate you, but I don't have to say that anymore, right? Husbands, don't ever say that to your wife, right? Uh, don't, don't ever say that. Because we should continually show our love and appreciation for our spouse, right? On a regular daily basis. To tell them how much we love them, how precious they are to us how much we appreciate them and all that they do. In a similar way, and even more importantly, we should be a people who are praising God and thankful to God for who he is and what he has done for us through Christ. Church, may we never get over the gospel because the reality is we don't need the gospel just one time when we are saved, right? We are a people who need the gospel each and every day in each and every moment of each and every day. And so, church, may we continually praise and worship God for the glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number three, rest in God's faithfulness. Rest in his faithfulness. As we've seen this morning, and as we've looked in Genesis, week in and week out, God is faithful to God carry out his plan of redemption to send uh, uh, his savior Jesus Christ we can trust in the, the we can we can trace or excuse me we can trace the providence of God over thousands and thousands of years to bring messiah king jesus to rescue sinners the bible shows of his faith shows his faithfulness over and over and over again. The people we read about in this genealogy, they doubted, they have rebelled against God, they lacked faith in God at times, but God proved himself faithful over and over and over again. Not only that, God often, he uses unlikely means to accomplish his sovereign purposes as we've seen multiple times this morning as well. And this displays his glory and his power, his majesty. Not only was God faithful in the past to preserve his people, but he remains faithful today. Once again, our God never changes. He is faithful. He remains the same forever, and he is a faithful God. Second Timothy 2, 11 through 13, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. But listen to this. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And church, just listen to, the, listen to these verses from Romans chapter 8. Just sit back and listen and reflect on this glorious news these glorious verses in Romans chapter 8, 28 through 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Brothers and sisters, our God is sovereign. He is faithful. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing, not even death, that can separate us from his love. How encouraging is that? Church, take those truths to heart. Be encouraged and reminded that our God, he is faithful he is trustworthy. As you reflect on those verses I read in Second Timothy and Romans 8, be encouraged that the one who predestines us, who will, he will also call us, he will justify, and he will glorify. Absolutely nothing can break that chain. Nothing, not even death. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord our Messiah. Praise the Lord. Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah who was born of the Virgin Mary in order to rescue us from our sins. God is completely sovereign and all-powerful. He is absolutely trustworthy and faithful. And so, friend, perhaps you're here, perhaps you're listening online. Maybe you haven't trusted in Christ. I urge you, in light of what we've seen this morning, in light of the fact that we have seen that our God is majestic, he is all-powerful, he is faithful, and he has sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. I urge you to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ, for he alone is Messiah, He alone is Savior. And so trust in Him. He is where true hope and true peace is found. So friend, please, I urge you to repent of your sin and trust in Him. Now, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, be encouraged. Be encouraged this morning by who our God is and what He has done on our behalf. Our God is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He is faithful, he is trustworthy, and he is our glorious savior and sustainer. May these truths stir up our hearts to worship him and may it give our restless souls rest. Church, would you please pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for sending Jesus the long-awaited Messiah. We thank you for your sovereign plan of redemption that you have carried out over thousands and thousands of years to bring about King Jesus. We thank you for sending Jesus to be born of the Virgin Mary by way of the Holy Spirit, to be fully God and fully man, to live a sinless life, a perfect life that none of us could live so that he could be the perfect sacrifice. To shed his blood, to break his body as we celebrated this morning in communion. So that he would take on our sins and freely and joyfully give us of his perfect spotless righteousness. So that in your eyes we would be righteous, so that we would be one with you, that we would be reconciled back to you through faith in him. God, if there is anybody listening this morning, here this morning, that has yet to believe in Christ, God, help them to see that this is an urgent message that they must believe in order to be made right with you. For there is no other way but through Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. God, give them faith to trust in you right now. Right now, God, we urge, we, we pray and beg you, Lord, to save sinners for your glory. And Lord, we thank you so much that, um, that not only does the gospel save us, but God, it is glorious news to continue to worship and praise you for each and every day. May we be a people who continually do that day in and day out. And Lord, may we be a people who rest in your faithfulness for you have sovereignly sustained your people in, in the past. And Lord, we know that you are God who never changes. You always remain the same and you are always faithful. And we can rest in your faithfulness even today. So Lord, may our restless souls find rest in you May we continually depend upon you, Lord, and trust in your goodness and your faithfulness to us. We praise you that you are God who is faithful and trustworthy. We pray all this in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen.